Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. Um, we, uh, in, in the plans, uh, we had plans to start Psalms this week. We're going to delay that a couple of weeks. Uh, because we have some uh, special speakers that, that are coming in. Before you tell you about those, those, just a reminder, today is the last day. We're closing the above and beyond offering for, uh, for word partners and the 10 pastors that are completing their four-year training in Costa Rica. So our desire was to, to actually to encourage them uh, by, um, by at least... Um, paying half of their way, which would have been $3,000 to pay for all of those pastors to complete their last training in August. Um, We had a generous family say, we will match um, up to $3,000 in order to pay. And and this goes, uh, we're sending um, uh, Cody and um, one of our elders to Costa Rica um, uh, for that for that training to be with those pastors, um, none of the above and beyond go towards helping them. This goes all towards those national pastors. Um, and we have I, it was midweek that we checked, and we have less than fifteen hundred dollars to go to that will be matched um, in order to pay a hundred percent of those pastors' training. So. Um, think about that, pray about that as God leads you. Give over and above your regular giving and let's have to help those pastors. That would just encourage their hearts. Most of them work two jobs. They pastor and um, they, they also work a job to sustain themselves um, and their family. So um, it would be just a huge encouragement uh, to, to those pastors. Um, also, um, we have coming next week, uh, Scott Statson, um, he is a church planter in the Fenton area, and he's going to tell you about his journey, and he's going to be speaking um, this next week. And so the, the New Testament is always about the movement of the gospel, churches planting churches that plant churches. Um, Scott has an amazing story. John Gilfillan, our pastor that pastors our church plant, in Portage, um, met him a number of years ago, and he'll share your, your, his story um, as he was pastoring a church, and God called him into church planting and what's happening um, in, in that church. You can also be praying for a church plant as well. There was a parchment student that I knew when you know, he was in elementary school and, and middle school, and he has been in a church in Pawpaw. Uh, for a number of years, he's a talented musician, incredible preacher, and he is starting a new church in Kalamazoo on like the west side, Portage, Madawan area, and uh, they are in pre-launch right now, and uh, so we want to pray for that, that new church. Also, um, I've been meeting with a team of five families that have picked up from central Illinois, and they're moving to Kalamazoo, Michigan. Um, they are going to be attending a Neil Quinn's church, Good Shepherds, wonderful uh, Presbyterian church meeting out at Kalamazoo, um, the, or Kalamazoo Christian Elementary School on 12th Street. And uh, they are workers in campus outreach, which is an amazing organization to reach college students. So these five families, m- many of them, most of them have children, they're picking up, and they're coming here as missionaries to the campus that is like less than seven miles directly south of us. 
And I met with Kenny, who's the regional director, and you're going to hear on the 25th from Chase um, Smith, who is the campus director of Campus Outreach. Campus Outreach is unique, um, and you'll find out about the uniqueness of Campus Outreach in that they are very local church-oriented. You know, there isn't campus life beyond campus. You know, for those of you that, that experienced campus life at college, it was a wonderful thing. But once you get that diploma, there's like this little switch, and it goes off. And so, but yet spiritual life needs to, to continue um, beyond that. And uh, we, we want to see young people, international students, come to know Christ. And this is a wonderful uh, organization that's an extension of local churches to reach students on college campuses. And so you're going to hear from them, and we want to encourage them. Um, one, one last thing, and I just love seeing this show, you know, um, I hope this isn't, you know, too much, but Micah is here this morning, but notice Micah, he's just sitting there all by himself. You know, he, he's not lonely, like he's one of our teenagers, but he's got something to do today, right? So he's here in this service, drove himself to church, right? So those of you that are younger, right? There's a young man, great example. Um, good job, Micah, being here. I love it to see, te- love to see teenagers driving themselves to church to take in the word. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Um, so take your Bibles, if you don't have them already opened, um, to Genesis chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8. When man began to multiply on the face of the when man began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took wives, any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of their heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's right. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. If you could have picked a more unusual um, passage with difficult interpretation, this is probably one of the most difficult passages in the Bible. Um, What I want us to do is I I, I want us not to look past the difficulty, but to look into the difficulty of this passage. Because here um, we have multiple mysteries in this passage, but yet one message. So there's there's a couple of things that I want you to see from this passage. So so here's the goal. There's something about the nature of humanity that we're going to discover in the message today that is true for all humanity. Um, There's also another layer of this, 
we see the trajectory of nations and law. We won't get into to that. That's more about what comes before this and certainly what comes after this. For the context of this passage is Noah and setting the stage for Noah in a worldwide flood. And, and so, but there's a certain aspect of this that has to do with the rise and fall of nations, that if we were to get into the larger swath of Scripture, we could make some observations and even application from Scripture. So I'm going to leave that part to you. There's also something that I want you to see in this passage about families. We've been talking about families. Um, This passage has to do with families. A lot of that comes after, um, but that last verse... Um, we can, um, more than infer, we can state the rescue of God of a family and what is happening to families from the verses preceding um, that preceding verse 8. What is the family dynamic in this passage? Um, Most of all, and what is at the center of the message here is the grace of God. So even though we we see these mysteries and we're going to dive into them, um, we don't want to miss... What's happening here? We don't want to get down into the the granular details so far um, that we actually have to be warned by St. Paul, hey, don't don't battle over words in here. Like, make sure you're understanding the movement uh, of the the text and how this text moves and what is the theme uh, of this particular text so you can see that. But nonetheless, we are called to be students of God's word. Um, So that's why we do have to get down into this. Um, But uh, let me point out again that verse 8 is the key. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That is the key. This particular passage functions as like the trailer, the opening scene for this great day of judgment and a worldwide flood. Let's look at verse 1. In verse 1, we read this. And so what we're going to see here is we're going to see four mysteries and one message. Right? So those of you that are note takers, you're going to say, now he normally has an outline. But we're in a particular genre. We have a narrative. And so narratives, you, you don't necessarily go point by point through a narrative. Right? Um, when you tell a story to someone around the bonfire, you don't say, let me tell you a story. Point one is this. What do you do? You tell the story. And the story has what? One point, one message. You're driving at something. So that's how we're going to walk through. The genre determines um, our message this morning. The text determines our message. So we're going to walk through um, the narrative here and get to the message of this passage. Verse 1 says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they, took wi- and they took as their wives any they chose. So the statement here that begins that when man began to multiply on the face of the land, the daughters were born to them. It's simple enough. It takes us back to Genesis 4 and again to Genesis 5, and, and we look on that to understand what, what is, what's going on in this passage. Genesis 4, there's the expansion of the human race, but there is a particular focus in Genesis chapter 4. It is the wicked line of Cain. So the, the, the son um, that was born and his descendants. And then Genesis 5, 
Um, it, it traces the, the line of Seth, which was a righteous line. Um, Genesis is all about these are the generations. You'll see that phrase repeated. In fact, the structure of the entire book falls on that particular phrase. These are the generations of. And you'll see that through the book. So when you're reading Genesis, just know when you see that phrase, you're moving from one section to another. And so in Genesis chapter 6, we find another description of that period of time when man began to multiply across the face of the earth. But the focus here is different. It's different. In Genesis 6, we don't find a genealogy. We find special attention given to what? To wickedness. The wickedness that of man that was increasing in the earth in those days. Verse 2, it says, The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took them as their wives. So we ask here, who are the sons of God and the daughters of man? Now there's three main views, and um, we, I'm not going to, to get into all of the views in, um, in detail here. They're worth looking into. Um, one is that the sons of God, that phrase of sons of God, are um, angelic beings. It's actually an, a very old interpretation of this passage. It takes the sons of God referring to rebellious angels. Um, according to the, this angelic interpretation, these were angels that were attracted to the daughters of man, um, that is to say women in general, and through carnal relations produced a special breed of human. Perhaps what's mentioned later in the passage, the Nephilim, they're mentioned in verse 4. Um, so there, there are very wise and, and uh, very learned biblical scholars that um, connect this passage to some things that are happening in 1 Peter in the New Testament and passages in the New Testament, and they look back and they say, this is um, when, when Jesus preaches condemnation, when he, he, when he preaches, that, um, and there's a reference to, um, to Noah and to Jonah, this is what that passage in the New Testament in 1 Peter um, is referring to. There is a, another interpretation that the phrase sons of God refers to the, the descendants of Seth and the phrase daughters of man refer to the descendants of Cain. Um, so that is another um, interpretation. A third one, and this is, this is the one that um, I prefer, and you don't have to prefer um, this. Um, again, this is kind of one of those things where you read this and you say, well, it could be this, it could be this, it could be this, but it doesn't affect the message. Still is a mystery, but yet we can see the plain message in the text. A third interpretation um, is, is historically called the royal interpretation. And it would take the phrase sons of God to refer to powerful, wicked, even tyrannical kings associated with the unrighteous line of Cain. And with King Lamech, he is introduced back in Genesis chapter 4 in verse 18. Um, why would kings be called sons of God? I, I think the answer is pretty simple, actually. Um, this is what the kings claimed to be. Um, they actually claimed um, to be and considered themselves to be of divine origin. They, they claimed to be um, sons of God, to having divine origin. You, it doesn't, you go back to your, 
your world history class in high school or college, and um, you'll, you'll know that the Roman emperors, um, long after this point, but the Roman emperors as well, they claim to be what? They claim to be divine. Um, Egyptian pharaohs, you can explore the pyramids and the ritual burial and all of that, and you'll see that they claim to be descendants uh, of the gods. And so um, we, we can see this even in the context of ancient literature that kings who lived prior to the flood made this claim. They considered themselves to be divine. Um, and there's, there's this kind of irony that's present in the text. You note that the, the things that they claim to be, the very text, if we were to read on um, further in the chapter, they are proven what? to not be kings who are gods at all. Um, but rather, even just like as Israel, when they crossed the Canaan River, the river uh, um, of Jordan and entered into um, the land that was promised them, every single event that takes place was what? Was a defeat of a so-called God of the people that occupied the promised land. And there's this pattern through scripture um, that God is constantly saying, um, that he is God. There's another thing in this passage that shows that they were not truly God. Um, it says, it's right there in verse 2. They what? They saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. They were driven by what? Um, they were driven by ungodly passion. These kings claimed to be divine. They were associated with the unrighteous line of Cain and not the righteous line of Seth should be plain enough in the text. Um, notice the, the terminology of 6.1. If you just flip over my Bible, it's just um, a page back. Um, chapter 4, verse 14. In 6.1 we read, When man began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them. In 4.14 we encounter um, Cain's complaint against God. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Cain was earthly and that is worldly and so were these tyrant kings. Um, there's similarities between 4.18, um, the La between Lamech. Um, 4.18 reads, Methuselah, or Methuselah fathered Lamech, and Lamech took two wives. Right? So file that into your um, family systems thinking. And some people will say, hey, how come God never says, like in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt only have one wife or thou shalt only have one husband. Why isn't it there? Well, it's because we have the pattern established in, in, in the very beginning of Genesis. And when you, when you look at that pattern in Genesis and then you read the rest of the Old Testament, when you see things like this, as you read your Bible, that they took any wives as, as they, they chose, and Lamech took two wives, does that ever work out well? The answer is no. There's judgment to follow when we step outside of the pattern of our creator God. And so we see this as well. In, in verse 23 of chapter 4, we read, Lamech said to his wives, 
Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Um, Lamech's transgression, he, he, Lamech transgressed God's design for marriage. He took multiple wives, and what happened to him? He began to rule what? Like Jesus? No, like a tyrant. Right? He began to use and abuse people. Instead of promoting justice, what did he do? He oppressed. He oppressed his subjects. He practiced injustice. He put a young man to death for wounding him. And so we see here that these so-called sons of gods were rulers in the line of Cain and Lamech. They took the sins of Lamech. They multiplied them greatly. They, they not only took two wives as Lamech did, they did what? They took as many as they desired. And so you'll see this theme. Those in the wicked line of Cain were obsessed not with giving glory to God, but with promoting what? Their own name, their own agenda. You remember that Cain was a city builder. He was a king. And when he built a city, what did he call it? Did he call it to the praise of, of Lord God Yahweh? No, he named the city after his son Enoch. And he is portrayed in scripture with an insatiable appetite for glorifying himself. And so the text implies that the so-called sons of God repeat and amplify the original sin of Adam and Eve. Think about this. Think about the language of scripture when it says these kings did what? They took. Where do we hear those words? We heard them right in Genesis chapter 3. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it delighted, it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So these kings transgress God's command. They take their powerful warrior kings and they rule in a tyrannical manner. They took any woman that they desired into their harem, and these, these women had children that were born to them. And so God says, verse 3, The Lord then said, My spirit shall not abide with man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. So how do we understand this? Well, there's two possible ways to understand this statement. His days shall be 120 years. So in this particular section, I think it's both. There's a, there's a both and. I'll let you choose what you think um, it, it is, but I think it's both. 120 years could be understood as the time that passed between issuing the decree that there would be judgment. In other words, this, this statement indicated that God was going to pass judgment in 120 years, but it also could be understood as the eventual limit of the lifespan of man, 120 years. Now, we know that there are others that live past this after the flood, but you will see as you read those generations that slowly, gradually, that worked its way down. So there was a judgment, and it was approximately about 120 years. You look at the internal and um, other evidence in the text that from this point, to the flood was about 120 years, and so was the span of a man's lifetime. Interesting enough, I and mean, we don't need this, it's external, it's just kind of food for thinking. 
Um, those that, that, that study biology, when they look at the structure of a cell from, from the time that, that, that um, the, in the cells that make up a human body, there is a particular structure that is on a lifespan. And so modern science says, okay, when will that structure break down? When will, will ultimately it, um, uh, the, the very structure waste away? They said about between 110 and 130 years which would be 120 years, right? So we don't need these kinds of things to go, the Bible is, is true, but um, just looking at the biology, um, it confirms the already and is now truth of God's word. And so that's where, where I say, well, this, this is, God is saying here that wickedness is so bad that he is going to bring judgment. It's going to be 120 years, but as well, he is bringing to an end tyrannical rule. In other words, what he's saying here is by the very nature that he's shortening the life of mankind, um, he, rulers cannot rule for long periods of time. Eventually they die, and there has to be a changing of the guard. And, and hopefully that, um, that lifespan that has now been shortened upon the face of the earth will limit the possibility of long-term wickedness. So then we read in verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came to the daughters of man and they bore children to them and they were mighty men of old, men of renown. So who were these Nephilim in the text? Well, the word simply means giants. Right, so we have um, uh, actually the mascot for Kalamazoo Central is what the Kalamazoo Nephilim, the giants. <laughs> right, that's that's simply what it means. It just means giant. Um, means someone who is who is large. The Nephilim were the children and sons of God that are already mentioned in the text. They're called the mighty men of old, the men of renown. You know, it's not really difficult to imagine that these these kings, these despotic kings, were were large and they were powerful warriors. That's how you gained power. It was brute force um, in, that, in those days. And so here they were amassing to themselves these harems, uh, women, multiple women, and they lived quite long. And it doesn't take too much to go, okay, what were they doing, right? It was a program of having offspring that would be strong and tall and mighty warriors. So it was a selective process. Again, um, file that away and think about the implications when it comes to family um, and even what's happening today in our world. Where do you see these kinds of behaviors? Where do you see them taking place? That there is this selection in order to produce strength of a particular kind. Some implications here in the text that um, we, we don't want to go down that road too far because we don't want to miss uh, the we don't want to miss the main thing here in the text. But it's there. It's important to note. And so there were these times where we're in, in times where battles were fought hand to hand and face to face. It's reasonable to assume that these kings and kingdoms grew stronger as they produced more and more 
of these men, giant warriors, mighty men, men of renown. You think about um, this, that um, we look at Scripture and we'll see repeated in Scripture references to giants. Where, Where do we see that? Numbers chapter 13, right? Where the spies were sent out. Ten of them came back and said, we can't do it. Why? There are giants in the land. And, and so what happened is they, they cowered. Two men said we could out of the 12. And so because of that, what happened? A whole generation. At that point, it was 40 years. Life had significantly, the span of life had significantly dwindled. 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness to what? That generation passed, and it was the next generation that goes into the promised land. When Israel wanted a king, who did they choose? Why did they choose him? He was head and shoulders above all the rest. But who did God choose? God chose David, the youngest, the youngest son. And where does David prove his strength? On the battlefield against who? A giant. And so you see this theme throughout scripture and it's important to make these kinds of connections you make this connection to the prophet Zechariah in Zechariah chapter 4 verse 6 has said not by might nor by power but by his spirit says the Lord of hosts that his kingdom is established in this way not by power and not by might but by the spirit of God God will establish his kingdom but he is not going to do it through the strength of man. And we think of even Christ. How does he establish and begin his kingdom? He begins his kingdom with the most powerful kingdom on earth, arresting Jesus, taking him by force, nailing him to a cross, and he dies. It seems like a defeat. But then the most powerful display we see in the resurrection. Jesus arose. That's how he established his kingdom. Next we see in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. See, God sees the... tense and and thoughts of our hearts. Um, We read in the New Testament something very similar. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace, they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 18. You know, some people simply reject the Bible because the Bible tells them the truth about their heart. It tells us the truth about our hearts. It's incredibly humbling to read those verses and say, that's me before God. But that is the truth. That is us. That's our hearts. It's easy to to look in this this passage of scripture that's before us in Genesis chapter 6 
and shake our fist at these despotic kings and align ourselves with Noah. Um, we ought to align ourselves with Noah. But I think what the, what the passage is pointing towards is that we are more like the despotic kings in many ways. We are also like Noah, um, but, but that is our heart. It's a representation of who we are. And so we ought not to lose heart, right? We see from beginning to end in Scripture that mankind is fallen, sinful, and unregenerate. But yet we see the hope that is in Christ. Now here we we have another mystery in the passage. It says the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Here's a mystery. How does this, how does God, how is he grieved? How does he regret that he made man? I think the statement and the meaning of the statement is rather simple. Um, It's speaking to us in emotional language. Um, God was displeased with the wickedness of man and here we have the language of human emotion. And in the, it's, God is speaking to us so that we experience the, the truth that's communicated to us. Does, does God regret? Does he ever change his mind? The answer is no, but he has great displeasure at the wickedness of man. And we have, um, this weekend, we had um, two little babies in our house. Um, all weekend, and how do you go around speaking when there's two little babies in, in the house, right? You know, I'll do it. It's embarrassing, right? You know, it's like, oh, little baby, you know, you're, that's what you do. You kind of talk to them, and you make like little baby noises like that, right? That's how you speak. That's how God is speaking to us here. It's intended to communicate um, a truth to us. And the truth is, um, the word for it, um, the word for talking about, you know, God's, the hand of God. Does God have a hand? No. The, we, we, we talk in, in those ways where, um, where um, the, Moses saw the, the back of God as his glory. Does, does he have a back? No. And so how do we understand this? Um, when, when, when we refer to the human parts of God, when we use, God, use um, these phrases, um, there, there is a, a term for that. Um, it's anthropomorphic. We're assigning these kinds of human-like qualities, uh, um, hands and feet. And, and, but when we, when we assign a, um, when the scriptures assign an emotion, it's anthropopathic. It's an emotion to God. And so it's, it's telling us something about God. Does he regret in this way? The, the answer is no. So what we do is, is we have to look at this and we have to understand it by the way of negation. When we interpret passages like this, we have to strip away all that is human, all that is not proper to God to get at what is the author um, helping us understand. And what we have is, and we do this most naturally, what's left in Genesis 6, 6 is that God was terribly displeased with the wickedness of man in those days. The truth communicated here is a truth that you feel. Right? So think about that. What does it feel like to be disappointed? Right? That's, that's, what, that's the understanding, disappointed. And so what God is doing is in his judgment, he is deeply, deeply disappointed. Um, this is not an issue that is an, 
a changing of mind. God is always the same. He's always the same. He does not regret. So there are passages that um, tend to stump us. We say, well, is, what is God doing here? But it's important in the way of negation to say there's something here that's being communicated about God that's putting it to us in these baby terms so we can understand the, the, the incredible and, and, mind you, incomprehensible complexity of a God who is one simple thing that we cannot comprehend. It's an amazing thing. So just know the language falls far short. So the Lord said, I will blot out man, verse 7, whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things, birds and heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And then verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. We read these amazing words. Can you imagine if in these first eight verses it went from seven to nine? How hopeless this passage would be. But we have hope. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And what does it mean that Noah found favor? Um, the, the, the New King James translates it grace. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is a tremendous thing to consider. Because we look out over the face of the world at this time through the lens of Scripture and we see exceeding wickedness and sinfulness spread throughout all the earth. But what do we see about the character of God? His grace. So think about it, friend. You're here this morning and if you look at the landscape of your heart this morning and you see exceeding sinfulness... What does God have in God? Well, there is judgment, but there is also what? Great grace. Always great grace. God was gracious still. Great, he preserves a people by himself. In fact, it says that, that Noah was righteous in his generation. That like Enoch before him, he walked with God. How did he do that? Was he kind of shining the award that he got? Like, hey, look at me. I'm pretty good. Walking with God award. You know, kind of his badge there. Well, he didn't have one of those. And if he did have one of those, it was by what? He wouldn't be wearing it, shining it, showing it. You know, he, he walked with God by what? Because of God's grace. Simply God's grace. It's an amazing thing that we see here. That God throughout all history, even when the night is dark, the shining light of God's grace shines through. It's still true for you and I today. It's why we can trust God with all of our heart, with everything that we have, with all of our life. But God was still gracious. How might we apply these truths? How might we apply these truths? Um, let's bring this to a close. That's the message of this passage. What God wants us to see this morning is his great grace. Without God's grace, who do we become? 
Who do we become? You look at a neighbor and say, well, this neighbor isn't following after God. They don't really know God, but they're a pretty good person. What do we attribute that to? God's grace. Oh, God is gracious on even the lost, right? In that they have some form of goodness because what we see is we see in this passage God's grace narrowing, right? We could actually say of this passage, God was very gracious in that he was gracious to save Noah and his family. And when we say, well, well, that's not really fair. No, what we see is we see men doing what? Doing exactly what they want to do. That's what they were doing. And when men and women, when, when mankind do, do, does what they want to do, what does the face of the earth look like? It looks dark and wicked. But when God's grace is over, nations and communities and people, what do you see? Um, you see flourishing. And at the very center of that is what? Trust in him for salvation. And him alone, that's at the center. Make much of that. Yes, God gives grace in general, but where does it come from? It comes from saving faith. It comes out of the work of Jesus Christ. It centers in the gospel. Without Jesus, we have nothing. Jesus is the absolute center. That's what's being promised in this passage. That's what the rest of the story, that's what the whole story is about. Without Jesus and, and the grace that comes through Jesus Christ, we are utterly lost. But with Jesus, we are found and God's grace shines. On Christians, those who believe, yes, and it blesses. That was the promise to Israel. And so it is too true to, to the church today that through you, all the world will be blessed. Through who? Through Jesus and through those that follow Jesus, you are a blessing because you uphold who Jesus is. You hold it out. You hold forward the grace of Jesus Christ. Not just here on Sundays, this is central, but through everything that you do and all that you do and all that you are. Who do we become? Well, we become tyrannical and self-serving. We become abusive of others in many ways. We seek our own power without God's grace. And God is greatly displeased with that. But with God's grace, who do we become? We become righteous, not because of what we have done, but because of his grace. What do we, because of God's grace, what do we become? We become saved and safe. Saved and safe. Finally, what were the families like in this passage? What were the families like? What were the men who were the kings like? And I would say that we have a lot of kings in here. And we have a lot of ki little kingdoms in here. What were the men, and read the rest of the passage. This is perhaps a question that we need the whole story and not simply verses 1 through 8 to answer. So I'll leave the answer to your own study. But compare those kinds of kingdoms. How do men rule that have God's grace? How do men rule that know the Savior and follow the Savior? Now there's a difference. It's a world of difference. And so I pray for our kings and the kingdoms 
that they would seek first the kingdom of God. In fact, that's why God has given you a little kingdom. In order to build his kingdom and seek his glory. May it be so by God's grace. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the mysteries of this passage. On one level, it just makes the study of God's word um, such an interesting thing. There's been a lot of talk about the meaning of this and the meaning of that and the understanding of this. But we can see the flow of the text and it is plain and it is clear and our response as well to the text is clear. We are called to search our life, our actions, our words, the intents of our thoughts, our actions, and we are to commit them all to you. We are to give our lives to you and we are to ask you for your mercy and your grace. For we recognize that we have nothing without you. We desire to be in the spiritual line of Noah that enters into your salvation. To trust you wholly. And so Lord, in these moments that we consider our lives and the truth of scripture, I pray that the spirit of God would work. As we respond, I pray that you would powerfully move in our hearts. I pray this in Jesus' name. And for his glory, amen.